Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Avoid Crisis podcast with my co-host, Alan Plyler. Alan, how you doing? I'm doing well, Ray. Good to see you. And um, also, it's great to have another guest with us on this um, journey we've been on, talking about some really important topics, end-of-life type things. Maybe uh, take a moment here and introduce our guest. Sounds great. Um, yeah, this is episode 17, August the 10th of 2023. We are joined by Teresa Gutierrez, um, who's a, a trust and estate uh, lawyer uh, out of Los Angeles. Hello, Teresa, and thank you for joining us. C- can you hear? Can you hear us? I think we lost her audio. Okay. So, um, what uh, I do want to be uh, make a point here, though, is that. During this episode, we are not going to be giving out any individual tax advice or legal advice. The topics we're talking about today are just general information, educational. It's just information. So if you have specific questions, specific needs, you should consult your own attorney or you know someone who can give you specific advice. Um, with that, uh, Teresa, I see you're back. Can you hear us? I can hear you perfectly fine. Thank you, Ray. Welcome. Welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. So my name is Teresa Gutierrez. I'm a California Wills Trust and Probate Attorney, um, licensed in California, uh, based out of Los Angeles County, but I do represent individuals up and down the beautiful state of California. And I'm so happy and pleased to be here with you, Alan, and the Avoid Crisis podcast um, to discuss this very important topic. Actually, you kind of snuck it in there, but I think that's a great point to start, I think, for our listeners, is that the law in this area is individual by state. So the concepts you're going to hear today are kind of general. They, some of them may be to California, but you should take this to a, an, a competent attorney in your state to be sure that what the local rules are. That's a great, I, you snuck that in there. Good point. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a point well taken, Ray. Um, I know you have a national audience, so exactly, folks um, at home that are listening, take this all with a grain of salt. It's very jurisdiction specific. Um, my points will be more geared toward California, so a neighboring state or a state across the country might do things differently. So you'll definitely want to consult with somebody on the ground there that can best advise you as to your specific situation. You know, I'd, I'd like to kind of jump right in because, I mean, this is a great topic. And then, you know, um, it, the whole idea of planning ahead for your life and also planning ahead for the potential of death coming at any time. Um, and, you know, there's sad news out there right now about what's happening in Hawaii, as an example, where, you know, uh, it's so unfortunate about this, this, you know, this fire that's happening out there and the deaths that are coming from that. But it made me think a little bit even before this podcast about, you know, shouldn't everybody be kind of preparing for the legal ramifications of their death and, and to protect their family? And so one of the questions I have is, you know, we're talking about, you know, estate planning, that type of thing. Is it just for the wealthy or is it something that, you know, more people should be uh, considering? I love that question, Alan, because I think when we hear just the terminology estate planning, just that word estate, I think has so many connotations for people. And automatically this assumption is maybe a mansion or a castle and all these fancy cars. And that's really not the case. An estate to define it in super simple terms is anything you own. 
It could be a simple bank account, really. That could comprise of your estate if that's all you have. But it can include more things such as a home, vehicles, investment accounts, uh, life insurance policies, you name it. It's anything you own, whether it be real estate um, and or personal property. So no, it's not just for the wealthy. I think at the end of the day, we all have something that we seek to protect, um, whether it's what we have and whom we want it to go to when we are no longer here. Um, but also, I think I would like to challenge people's point of view on what estate planning means, because I think most of us do. And estate planning does have to do in large part with what happens to our assets, anything we own once we pass away. That is a huge component of estate planning. And I think that is what most people consider when doing estate planning. But at least in the state of California, if we're ever incapacitated and we don't have proper documentation set up with respect to who should manage our assets during our lifetime, if we cannot do so, um, and or take care of us with respect to personal decisions, so on and so forth, which I'm sure you'll ask me about shortly, if we don't have all of that designed, um, we can find ourselves in a situation, not just at our passing where our estate ends up in court, but also during our lifetime. So I would like to think of the state planning um, as something that really anybody that is 18 and over needs in some sh uh, way, shape or form. Um, but also something that's not just a tool for what happens to us once we're no longer here, but also to protect what we've worked so hard for um, during our lifetime, should we ever be in a situation where we cannot manage it by ourselves. Yeah, I mean, uh, another kind of a follow-up on that is um, maybe you can talk a little bit and just explain, you know, what what's involved with, for instance, an estate, what's involved with, um, you know, whenever we have something like a will or maybe a living will or a trust. I mean, generally speaking, you know, there's certain advantages of these vehicles. Um, there's also advantages for when you set this up in your life. There's also, you know, generation skipping, those types of things. I mean, there's a lot of topics we could talk about, but maybe just at a high level, you know, what is it that you normally see in a state type of uh, engagement? What do you see in a will engagement or a living will and a trust? Uh, maybe just kind of walk through each of those for the audience. Yes, for certain, Ellen. Um, when you think of an estate plan, at least in California, it's usually one of two things. It's usually will-based or will-driven um, or trust-based, trust-driven. Um, and as you've indicated, Alan, there's numerous types of tools and numerous types of trust that can be implemented depending on the individual or the family's um, unique needs as well as goals. But traditionally, what you're going to see, like I said, is either a will-based or a trust-based estate plan. So in California, that distinction matters tremendously because in California, if we pass away intestate without say a will or a trust, what ends up happening is the state of California has a plan for us, and that's called the probate process, which we could talk about later if you want. So most people that proactively do planning want to ward off the time and expense of the California probate court. So then they say, well, what's the difference, um, Teresa, between a will and a trust? And the difference in California anyway is if you have a will, at least that's better than passing away into state without anything, because in the will you can designate who your executors will be, who are going to step into your shoes um, and divvy up everything according to plan, as well as um, you know what percentage, let's say, you want your asset distributed. The issue or the downfall with using a will-based estate plan only is that the will, much like passing away without a plan, passing away into state, the will in California still has to be probated, meaning 
once the decedent passes away, um, his or her executors have to lodge that will with the court and it's overseen um, by the California probate court system. And it is also subject to fees, the probate fees, which we can talk about shortly, um, versus the trust. It has a similar function in that trustees, that is who's going to step into your shoes at your passing and divvy up your trust estate according to plan um, and uh, and in what percentages, right? And that could be real estate, it could be personal property, but the distinction between the trust-driven plan versus the will-driven plan is that the trust is in essence an agreement. Um, if it's an individual setting it up, it's an agreement between him or herself about how he or she wishes to uh, dispose of the estate. Um, as between a married couple, it is an agreement between the both of them about how they wish to dispose of their estate and in what manner. But the beauty of a trust-driven plan, at least in California, is that it does not have to be probated. So the trust is a private instrument, a private document that does not get lodged with the court at the decedent's passing, but rather the successor trustees can handle those affairs privately. So most Californians, uh, because of the um, the the high you know value of property here usually choose to go the trust route because they don't want their uh, California probate fees. And then, um, so in addition to the trust or a will, we would also set up a living will, right, which would document what the uh, drafter's goals are um, at their passing. What are their final wishes? The living will will. Um, will give instructions as to that point for the representatives of the decedent to, to know, okay, do they want cremation? Do they want burial? Do they want something else? Have they done any pre-planning that we should document in this living will? Um, and then we take it a step further, right? Because at least in California, if we don't have a solid estate plan set up, let's say some directives um, that give others the benefit of our thinking, if we're ever incapacitated with respect to who we trust to manage our finances and our um, our medical day-to-day -day care, um, we're going to end up in probate court in a process called conservatorship during our lifetime, which is, you know, a whole another topic we can get into. Right. Um, so, in addition to that will, the living will, the trust, hopefully, you're going to also have a, a healthcare directive um, indicating some, you know, wishes. Very difficult topics to discuss sometimes. To be honest, about whether or not. You wish to prolong life under certain uh, circumstances, whether or not you wish to donate organs, um, be connected to a ventilator, let's say. All of those important decisions are going to be laid out, hopefully, in a solid estate plan, because in a moment of uh, crisis or emergency, it can already be very difficult for family members to get in there um, and act on your behalf. And these directives aren't going to necessarily take that emotional component out of the very difficult decision-making process, but it can help mitigate, um, you know, conflict amongst the family because, or the loved ones that are left behind, because even if they disagree um, with the person's wishes, at least they know, hey, you know, that was mom or dad's desire and mom or dad drafted this, you know, when they were in all of their senses. And now, you know, they need of us to step into their shoes and make these decisions, but rest assured that's what he or she wanted. So it often minimizes uh, conflict. And in a similar sure. vein, the financial power of attorney uh, can be very helpful with respect to, let's say, the person that's temporarily or on a long-term basis incapacitated. Um, the financial directive is going to implicate who can step into their shoes. Maybe they say, oh, still have a mortgage. 
um, that they're paying. Maybe there has to be some sort of uh, refinancing or other, you know, care going on that without that instrument, again, a conservatorship is more than likely going to be required. And it's very expensive um, and very stressful. And ultimately, it requires court control and supervision. So the parties lose that control. And that's where things can get really challenging. So, Ray, I know you've been um, set up as a financial power of attorney through a number of your clients, and you've dealt a lot with uh, having to prepare final tax returns. And I'm sure you've seen some of the outcomes when the legal planning hasn't been accomplished and there's quite a bit of financial damage, I guess is a good way to call it, that can occur. Um, right. I, I, I've had a situation just this past week where one of my clients, the spouse, passed away. And um, so we contacted the IRS to say, okay, the, the surviving spouse is going to be, you know, signing the joint tax return on behalf of the deceased spouse, et cetera. And the IRS is going, okay, that's great. Send it. There's a form, a form 56, send us a death certificate and send us the trust or the will document that specifies that the surviving spouse is the person who's to take this role. Just because you're married doesn't mean it's that way. And so something as simple as that is who can sign the, 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 the next year's tax, the, the current year's tax return has a process and needs these documents. If you don't have it, it just creates all kinds of turbulence and uncertainty. You have to go through a whole nother process as, as, Teresa, as you were saying, probate and conservatorship and a bunch of stuff that is easily avoided. Right? Getting back to our topic, avoid crisis. This is very complicated if you do nothing and something happens and you need it. And it's simple if you take some basic actions ahead of time and, and, and do that. So, so that's a, you talked about probate. And so I think the risk of doing nothing is that, okay, so you're now at the mercy of the state and what those rules are. And there's an order of who can step in at what point, you know, mother, father, son, daughter, uh, cousins, uncles, aunts, you know, so on. There's, there's this, there's this order and hierarchy. And so obviously it's not going to be the choice of the person who passed. It's going to be the, the, the government that decides this order. And then the courts have to deal with it. And it's an expensive process. You got to get a lawyer. You got to go through all these things. What does it cost to go through probate versus what does it cost to have, to, to plan ahead and have a plan? Sure. Sure. No, that's, that's a great point to make, um, Ray. And so I always tell people whether or not you design your own estate plan, we all have one, at least in California, and that's the California probate code. It's, you know, it's really, it just boils down to that. Uh, with respect to the cost of probate, we, me or myself as a probate attorney, estimate that a good 2 to 7% of an estate um, or the assets can be lost in the probate process. And just to try and drive that home, let's just say an estate, uh, we're going to say a very modest estate is just comprised of a family residence. So we don't have these other fancy um, investment accounts or anything, bank accounts, nothing like that. Let's let's say for simplicity's sake, um, which is still a sizable estate in California, but let's just say the home is valued at five hundred thousand. Let's keep it simple. Um, probate fees in a situation like that would amount to approximately twenty six thousand um, dollars on the back end. Wow. Right. But I've seen a lot bigger. I just I'm wrapping up a probate right now that's a million and a half. And that's just the home. Um, that one's about fifty six thousand uh, in probate fees um, wow. versus if you're proactive and do something beforehand. 
honestly a solid plan depending on your situation right um you guys are our tax folks sophisticated folks so you know that some situations and with the sunset happening soon i'll let you guys get into that um there might be more involved planning for people but traditional traditionally speaking i think most folks in this state can probably get something done for about five thousand dollars or less depending on um again what their specific needs are obviously if there's things like special needs trust or other more sophisticated planning, it's going to go up from there. But you can see the differential there um, and you know how it would pay off to do something in advance because um, I'll tell you, and these fees are not uh, filing fees or anything like that. These are attorney's fees and fees for the representative. So that always comes out at the back end. And at least in California, what I'm seeing right now is these cases can run about a year and a half to two years. So we're talking, you know, let's say decedent passed away this January 2023. We file a case. Sure, we'll get our first hearing rather quickly, usually within about a month or two in L.A. County. The ball starts rolling. But then there's a series of events that has to happen from filing the case to when we come back to provide a final accounting for the court, including marshalling the assets and the debts of the decedent. Um, sometimes the sale of the home too is what ends up happening in the probate proceedings. So these fees that we're talking about, they're not fees that your loved ones would necessarily have to front and forward. No, but they would come out on the back end, usually after the sale of real estate, um, on the front end, at least in California, I tell a lot of my, uh, probate clients to set aside a good four to $5,000 in filing fees because we have to pay a filing fee to the court. Once you're appointed um, or before you get appointed representative, you also have to publish the case. It's a very public process. So we have to publish it in a legal newspaper um, to give notification, honestly, really to creditors, to give them the opportunity to come forward. So that's another expense. Once you are appointed representative, depending on the size of the estate, the probate court will do what's called a bond, which is really like an insurance based on the size of the estate. I've seen that run, you know, a couple thousand, sometimes more depending on the size of the estate, the idea behind a bond is, okay, if we're going to name you, Teresa, representative of the estate of Jane Doe, that's worth one and a half million dollars, we want to make sure that if you squander the assets during these proceedings, a year and a half or two, that the other heirs can be made whole. So that's why we're going to make you pull out this bond, um, just to make sure everyone's taken care of, right? So that's a good four to 5,000 on the front end. And then you have this astronomical fee, you know, on the back end. So a lot of people are very, you know, shocked usually when they come um, to speak uh, about a potential probate case. And usually the questions we ask up front is, okay, well, was there a will? You know, is there a trust? Have you searched, right? Have you searched? Let's make sure, because that would obviously be um, the, right? But sometimes we don't have a choice. And, you know, when it comes to the probate process, um, you know, at least at my firm, I'd like to think that my colleagues do the same. I try and counsel folks in a manner that's hopefully going to um, minimize the back and forth and the length of the process uh, for for individuals, meaning, you know, we want to go in there hopefully with non-competing petitions. We don't want a bunch of people um, asking to serve as representative. You know, it's not a cushy, cushy job. It's it's a job of responsibility. And like you noted, Ray, um, you know, in terms of who gets what, that's all set out by code. So a lot of people have this misunderstanding. If I serve as representative, I'm going to have control and decide who gets what. That's not true. That's not true. You are a fiduciary and the court is going to look at that chart really simple and see, did decedent leave a husband or a wife, children? No. Okay. Let's move on to the next level of, you know, potential heirs and just keep working our way down. So, so what I heard is 
single-digit, mid-single-digit thousands if you plan ahead, tens of thousands if you don't. And, That's right. Uh, and That's if nobody's fighting. If nobody's yeah. fighting, right? It gets more than – and then full control if you plan ahead. And no control if you don't. That's right. That's, so that's right. Kinda, well, that's kind of your choice, listeners. <laughs> there you go. Yes. yes. And <laughs> I know right. it's hard, right? There's so many, you know, day-to-day things we're dealing with in life. And, you know, as, as we progress in this conversation today, Ray and Alan, you know, I have some tips because it could be very overwhelming. Like, how do I get started? What are some things I could do now to at least some steps in the right direction. Maybe I'm not ready to get anything set up now, but what can I do okay. right now? So, so let's, right. let's run with that. What, what, yep. what is a simple first step? Sure. So I always tell people, you know, one place you can look at straight away is on your potential pay on death account. So I'm talking about things like um, bank accounts, uh, retirement accounts, life insurance accounts. I can't tell you how many times I've come across individuals um, who either were working on an estate plan or they have a loved one that's passed away that had these accounts and there was no beneficiary designation, right? So, so simple example, let's say, you know, um, Teresa Gutierrez, the bank of Teresa Gutierrez, let's say I have an account at the bank of Teresa Gutierrez. Hopefully on that account, I've indicated who's going to be my primary beneficiary, um, for example, 100%. And then maybe I have an alternate, I should have an alternate or a contingent beneficiary number two listed. And what's going to happen on these pay on death accounts is when I pass away, as long as my beneficiaries that are listed show usually, at least in California, a death certificate and a form of ID, they're going to have access to those proceeds. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing too, uh, just because you're mentioning that as a financial asset is the also mention about the transfer on death registration for securities uh, operates in the same way, allowing the um, beneficiary to immediately be able to take control and then um, take executive action or whatever action they want on those securities because it'll transfer over to their account. That's right. That's right. And it's so important because let's say even in this scenario, um, let's say there were beneficiary designations. Maybe there's a home. The home was regrettably not in a trust. Okay. So the home is still going to have to be probated. But if these accounts had beneficiary designations, that's at least going to allow the loved ones to have access to those accounts that can still help them uh, wind up other aspects of the estate. Sometimes those um, proceeds go to you know funeral and other final end of life costs. Um, that the family would otherwise not have access to. Otherwise, what ends up happening with those accounts, if there's no beneficiary designation, is they get pulled in uh, to the probate proceedings and we have to have somebody appointed administrator before they can access them. So, you know, I've seen it play out in both ways. Um, Obviously, the beneficiary designation, you know, is a preference if you can have it. So I say if nothing else, you know, or, you know, you only have so much mental capacity uh, to take on at the time, with respect to this topic, I would say go through all those accounts and make sure there's beneficiary um, designations of your choosing, or maybe they're already there, but they need some updating. Go ahead and do that with your financial uh, institutions, because rest assured, again, those accounts with a death cert and ID, they're going to pay out. It might not be right away and overnight, but if you have that, you're getting everybody set up. And then I think importantly, um, if you can have maybe some sort of file right? Where folks know that these accounts exist, because that's another issue I've run across. Some people come to me and say, hey, I know XYZ person had this account, but I can't find any paperwork on it. 
And it's like right. your your choice at that point is maybe your loved one's going to have to hire, honestly, a private investigator. And you don't want that either. Yeah. 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 And especially with, sorry, so especially with so many things being online now and, you know, and then passwords not being available, you don't even know what those accounts are, you don't know the balances. Um, it, it can be a real challenge with that if you're not uh, preparing and making sure that there is someone who's going to be able to access the information and take action. That's right. Yes. That, so I want to great points i love this first step because it's it, you're right it is the most basic thing it's and I, so i want to summarize if i could for the listeners the what what what's commonly called the pay on death accounts so it's any checking account savings account money market cd's your brokerage account where you buy and sell you know stocks bonds mutual funds um those and uh, those are the kind of the real basic more liquid ones you also want to have the retirement accounts your 401k your IRA, your Roth IRA, 403B, um, your any pension that you might be entitled to. You should have those accounts should have primary beneficiaries and secondary beneficiaries as well. And then the final one is going to be um, annuities and life insurance policies. Um, by the way, to the beneficiaries, none of this, if done properly, none of this is subject to income tax. So you can pass all this to your heirs income tax free uh, it went done properly. So that's the short list of the, or I guess rather long list of so the pay on death accounts. Um, final thing, never make this. Is, I, I will give a little tax advice. Never make your trust the beneficiary of your retirement accounts or actually of any of these accounts, quite frankly. They should be the individuals you ultimately want these funds to go to. Um, so we talked about what happens if you don't do anything. We talked about the cost difference. Uh, we've talked about first steps. Um, what what, uh, what about, let's talk about, um, I don't know, children. Okay, so you, you have young children, we get a little bit about special needs, but then what happens when they hit majority, when they're 18 or 21, depending on your state? Um, what are some considerations there? Sure, sure. So it's kind of three points um, or light bulbs rather that went off when, when you said that, right? So I'll briefly touch upon all of them. So what happens to your children? So yes, a huge consideration in a solid estate plan, especially for folks or even single persons that have minor children is what happens if I'm short-term or long-term incapacitated and cannot care for my child or if I pass away? and I leave behind my minor child. So a lot of people have the assumption, you know, oh, grandma, 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 grandpa will take care of it, or aunts, uncles, or godparents, right? Godparents especially. A lot of people think there's some legality that attaches to that, and there's not. So, you know, if I pass away tomorrow, let's say by way of example, I always use myself, not others, um, and I leave behind a minor child, um, hopefully I've set up what we call a guardianship nomination, right was which is in essence giving the court the benefit of my thoughts in my absence saying you know what um, this is going to be attached to a guardian petition um you know let's say my sibling is going to care for my minor child in my absence they're going to attach that nomination and that nomination after my death is going to be given considerable weight as long as this individual is suited you know hasn't wrapped up any child abuse cases things like that they are more than likely going to be nominated to care for my child until he or she turns 18. But if I don't have that, rest assured, a custody battle can ensue with respect to, and I've seen it happen, I have a case right now, 
that's been going for a good four years. Um, wow. Where I was successful in getting my client's guardianship. Yes, we did that. But um, there's a lot of visitation issues that I think could have been completely eliminated um, had we had the guardian nomination. But it is what it is. And we're doing what, the best that we can with what we have. So there is that. So if you have minor children, um, you should strongly consider doing a guardian nomination. And honestly, that's something you can do kind of on its own, similar to the beneficiary designations that we just spoke about to, you know, uh, one, two step in the right direction of getting your affairs in order. So I'll put that out there. But then Ray also touched upon, you know, what happens if um, one of our children or multiple of our children have disabilities? Well, in those cases, um, separate from just a traditional trust, we might want to contemplate setting up what we call um, in the estate community, a special needs trust. And in essence, the real kind of quick summary of a special needs trust is that what that does is it protects the um, child or the children with special needs when they come into their inheritance, they might be receiving some sort of public benefits for their disability, let's say. But the fact that they have a special needs trust set up for them means that with respect to their public benefits, this inheritance that's coming their way does um, in, in the government determining ongoing eligibility for those services. So special needs trust is very important um, in that regard to protect the public benefits, but also to be able to designate individuals, let's say if I'm the parent with a special needs child, when I'm gone, I need to list individuals that can keep, you know, kind of running the show for my special needs child. So I would do that in a special needs um, trust, okay? So, so you, um, you, you, excuse me, you cut out for just a second. I wanted uh, to be sure we caught that, that if, we can get the assets in the special needs trust that are for the benefit of that child for the rest of their life, as long as the funds last, that it, pre it prevents the state from being able to count that against their eligibility for, for state benefits or ongoing state support. Did I, did I, is that right? What yes. Okay. Yes. That's, that's one component of it. And then the second component is depending on the disability um, or the level of, of functioning that this individual has, he or she might not be in a position to manage um, those funds or those assets. So the special needs trust would also indicate um, successor trustees, let's say after myself, the parent, um, that could step into my shoes. And I would hopefully want maybe two or three folks um, in succession in right. order of preference that would be able to do that. Exactly. Okay. Got mm -hmm. it. And then now the child hits majority. Now. Yes. You know Yes, exactly. So now it's perfect season, right? Folks are have just graduated from high school. They're going off to college. It's kind of that delicate um, kind of rite of passage where, you know, maybe, you know, young adults have been relying as they should be on their parents for support and care. Maybe they still are while they're off in college or transitioning into work life. Um, and now all of a sudden, you know, maybe son or daughter's in another state let's say even out of California, um, maybe suffered some sort of uh, car accident um, or, you know, just got sick on campus, you know, some sort of food poisoning, something like that. But that child is now 18 and barely 18. So wouldn't I, Teresa, as mom, be able to call the medical professionals straight away and have access to the medical file and be able to make decisions? Um, and the answer is no, legally no. Um, so ideally in these situations, what we recommend for our young folks is to set up some basic sort of college plan, right? Maybe they don't need the full-blown trust. Maybe they haven't acquired any real estate, but maybe at minimum, they should consider setting up that health directive and that power of attorney. College, um, that health directive and that power of attorney can help young person, you know, they would hand it off to mom or dad 
or mom and dad might somehow be involved in helping them get that set up. But if the unthinkable happens uh, while they're away at school, mom or dad would have access through the medical directive uh, to the medical files, you know, because there'd be some sort of HIPAA waiver in there giving them authorization so that the medical team knows that they're not going to get sued. Um, and then also on the financial side, you know, mom and dad would have access to, you know, maybe managing credit cards or bank accounts or working with the loan agencies or the university of um, financial office or the college's financial office on behalf of the, the young adults. So it's not an automatic thing. Um, and then, uh, so, so that's definitely something, you know, that we, we need to think about because unfortunately it's one of those things that sometimes folks learn about, um, when it's happening. Yeah. You know, we've, uh, in this series talked a lot about trying to prepare in many different ways about end of life. And we talked about, um, in a few podcasts earlier about, um, just the whole idea of, of care. Uh, what kind of care for your medical needs, your living needs. We talked about palliative care as well. Um, and we talked about financial planning. And then we're talking today on the legal planning. And I think the same question comes up. Um, and that is, when is it the right time to really start taking this seriously and get something done? Um, should you wait till you're in your, your 50s, your 60s, or maybe 70s? I mean, we're all living to 100 at least. So... When's the right time to start taking action on this? Yeah, well, the best time. A. I'm sorry, you, uh, cut, you cut out. Say... You, you cut out right. Cut that I said. You yeah, cut out. Yeah. You cut out right there. If you could repeat that, please. Sure, sure. So I said the best time would have been yesterday. The next best time today. Um, <laughs> I definitely caught. Uh, you know the, the other segments you've done, and I think you're right. It is a universal theme. I mean, ultimately you know, listen, these are very difficult topics to discuss. I think just uh, as an individual with if he or she is single with loved ones, it's, you know, even between couples, right? It's just not something we, you know, sit and talk about necessarily by choice anyway, at the dinner table or on the drive on vacation. Um, it, you know, it's a scary topic. I, you know, I think for a lot of people, um, even the guardian nominations, honestly, with estate planning, that's one of the most challenging components of it, trying to figure out who in your absence would best care for your children. Even the best intentioned persons, um, it, it's really hard to contemplate or to contemplate your potential and capacity I think is really hard for people. When I'm sitting here and guiding my clients um, through these decisions, oftentimes I get the response of, I've never really thought about that. Um, can you give me an example or, you know, of how things would turn out if I made this decision or that decision and so on and so forth. Um, but I think it's really, you know, something worthwhile visiting because similar to your other um, series, you know, before this one is unfortunately with estate planning, we do run into situations where it might be too late sometimes. It might be too late because for us, um, estate planners, at least a solid estate planning attorney and a firm is going to look for things like uh, capacity, right? We're not just going to, you know, um, I could go off on the deep end here, but oftentimes if I get a call and somebody's already in a medical facility, um, maybe connected to, you know, some sort of um, pain medication and not 100% lucid, um, you know, there's probably not going to be much that we could do for them because the whole essence behind estate planning is that you have the capacity that you have awareness of what you own, uh, your loved ones. Like it's just a very, you know, fundamental, basic level of capacity of the, that you're supposed to have to be able to uh, sign these contracts. Cause in essence, that is what they are. So if you're being medicated and you've just been operated on, 
that's not going to be um, the best time. Or if you've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, it's not necessarily fatal. Alzheimer's or dementia doesn't mean you can't do it, but there's going to be more costs involved because oftentimes you have to get some sort of medical clearance to be able to do it and or have several meetings to identify um, times when you are most lucid over um, and I'll, I think we disconnected a little, but in terms of um, where your your cognitive ability is on the decline, sure. you're going to have to have maybe added meetings to document your capacity, especially if there's some concern that someone might posthumously challenge your plan, right? We want to take steps during your lifetime uh, to minimize that, that potentiality that someone's going to try and invalidate a trust um, or a will because you were, quote unquote, you know, just diagnosed with Alzheimer's think that's why yeah. I really think in my experience that planning ahead can ward off all of the things that can go wrong in this mm -hmm. process. You know, with the void crisis, we've mentioned many times that you need to um, think and analyze. That's the first step. Then you need to make some decisions. So you need to decide and then act. And um, a lot of what you've covered here today is really kind of highlighting the importance of taking action on the legal side because it's going to save money in the whole uh, avoidance of probate. And it's also going to result in a more timely transfer of assets to your heirs. Um, so I think it's really important to point out, um, you know, if you have not considered these steps in the past, it's really a great time to do that. I think we're coming up here on our time now. Um, Ray, maybe oh, yeah. we can have... Um, Teresa, give us a way to contact her and if you want to learn so, more. And, and so, her. Sounds great. I, I definitely want to do it. There's one last piece I want to cover if we can squeeze it in, uh, yeah. Teresa. Sure. Um, we talked a little bit about having an attorney involved, you know, a few thousand dollars or so, depending on the complexity and so on. And for some people that may be, you know, still not affordable. And so, are, I mean, versus doing nothing, is there anything in between? There's something like, an, is it a DIY kind of thing? Is there something online or whatever uh, that, that is at least acceptable? Or would you say, nah, just don't even think about that? What, what, sure, what, sure. Yeah. No, a uh, great, great point to make, you know, Ray, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic. Um, it has been very challenging for people, right? Um, at least in California, it's very expensive here. So I do respect um, individuals that are cost conscious um, and right have these concerns that they're dealing with. So that's a fair question, valid question, important question. Um, I would say be careful with the online platforms um, that promise you, you know, an estate plan in exchange for a few hundred dollars. Um, just to be honest, you know, the mere recording of a deed, let's say to your trust, can cost that amount. So it's similar, like think of when you're driving down the street and you see that billboard, oh, you know, uh, you're going to get divorced for $500. Again, the filing alone can cost that much. So I would, um, and whatever agreement you enter into with said individuals, um, look it over carefully and see what it includes, right? Because one issue, I just started a probate um, last month here in California, um, Orange County, and that person had done during the pandemic one of these online platforms. I won't say the platform, um, but there's a handful of them out there. And ultimately, they sent her the documents, but they were never executed. So um, prior to starting the probate process, I asked her um, only heir to please, you know, double check the facility, make sure. And she did. She said, she said, Teresa, I found them but they're not signed. And I said, okay, 
we have to go the probate route, you know, we're going to do it. This is how we're going to do it. So that's where I would be careful because that's not the first time I've seen that. I've actually seen it before where maybe a deed, um, cause when you set up an estate plan, at least in California, you have to fund it, right? The trust. Right. So think of the trust like a bucket. So once we set up that trust bucket, whatever we want to be subject to the terms of that. Trust. So we need to put it in there. So with respect to real estate, there's usually a deed moving it to the trust. Um, so I've seen situations where people go to these online platforms and then that deed was never recorded. So guess what? If they pass away, okay, they have a trust. That one was maybe executed, but the property was never put into the trust. So again, just be careful with what you're getting uh, for what you pay for. But think of it this way. When you go to a medical professional, maybe for a heart condition or to a dentist for some dental work, you're going to them because that's their focus area versus let's say um, going to a vet, right? Um, so kind of, um, honestly, for lack of better uh, choice of words, you get what you pay for, but for the individual that still wants to do something, um, and maybe him or herself, I would say instead of these online platforms, I would go with a more reputable source. Years ago, the California state bar who I'm governed by used to have a segment on their webpage about estate planning and they had um, directives that folks could print and sign. So I would often refer cost conscious persons to that link. Um, it hasn't been active for some time, but you could check the California um, bar website, right? They govern the attorneys in California, at least if you're in California. Um, also in California, I've often referred cost conscious folks to um, the Sacramento law library and the Los Angeles County Law Library. So even in your home state, if you're out of California, I would um, I would look at what your local law library has to offer because many of them do, and I've seen at least in LA County, workshops starting again. So they'll offer workshops and then at least Sacramento's law library, I have directed people there before to look at health directives that can be downloaded um, and executed, right? So maybe you just kind of feel you really need a health directive, you're gonna have a procedure uh, done or something like that, but you know, funds are tight because of that procedure. I would go with one of those more reputable sources um, than some do it yourself online. Another horror story, just real quick, of the do it yourself online. There was a situation where someone did one um, and then they were gifting um, a person to the car versus the other way around. So, you know, so <laughs> yeah. just be careful. Yeah, right, right. I would say and law libraries or the, the, um, the bar of your state. Go to and, them first because they might when, have resources. When you said that, you actually reminded me of one other source too that I just want to throw out is there are some not-for-profit organizations that have actual licensed attorneys that, that the nonprofit pays their salary. And then based on income you know, requirements, they're providing essentially free legal services to um, lower income uh, yeah. people. So I've seen, I, I've seen organizations like that. So do, do a little research that way, but I think uh, a point well taken, Teresa. So yes. Alan, to your point, I think we, we've, we've kind of gone a little over our time here, but what are, so much information. Thank you, Teresa. If of people, course. if people want to reach out to you and again, we're going to assume they're in California. Um, what's your, what's your contact info? How can they get a hold of you? Right. The best way to get a hold of all the platforms to reach me would just be my website. Um, it is a mouthful. So it's Teresa Gutierrez Law. Dot com. -E. <laughs> so just like my name is spelled T-E-R-E-S-A-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z-L-A-W.com. Teresa Gutierrez Law.com. You'll get phone number. Um, you can send a message directly, you know, and the other platforms you'll have access to from there as well. Great. Th thanks very much. Okay. Remind our listeners, follow us at avoidcrisis.com. Um, 
send us emails uh listen to our future episodes alan what do we what do we got in store in the future well first of all let's just talk about the uh the emails it's ray r-e-y at uh, avoidcrisis.com and it's alan l-e-n at avoidcrisis.com and uh you know we are now wrapping up on the series here about aging and elderly care i think it's been a great series and we're going to move into in our next podcast a series of ai benefiters and uh, those benefiters are companies that are publicly traded where based on the avoid crisis research team which is basically me <laughs> we've come up with some ideas of some investments you potentially could make obviously we're not going to provide any kind of investment advice but we're going to point out how our research and i know ray you're going to be helping me on this how our research indicates that they will be a benefiter from ai artificial intelligence machine learning and that that's going to potentially result in uh, maybe some movements of their stock so sounds exciting um you know, we hear a lot about AI, and I think a lot of people are almost like deer in the headlights. Well, what does this mean? What do I do? How is this going to affect me? And there's different aspects. There's professionally, but then there's also just as a consumer and as an investor. So this is going to be a real interesting series, Alan. Looking forward to it, our series on AI. Uh, Teresa, thank you again for joining us. We really thank appreciate you all your expertise and knowledge and and uh, stories that you shared with us today. Um, and uh Listeners, we'll uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. We, we're going every other week at this point. So until then, good day. <laughs>